And Johnny will release those microphones and those cameras with blood all over him, fighting off anyone who tries to help him, defending America even if it means his own death, rallying a nation of television viewers into hysteria to sweep us up into the White House with powers that will make martial law seem like anarchy. Hello everyone and welcome to Late Seating. I am Jason Harding. And I'm Steve Shives. Hey Steve. Yes, Jason. You've done excellent work, Steve. You may sit down now. Yes, ma'am. Allow me to introduce our American visitor. I must ask you to forgive his somewhat lackadaisical manners, but I have conditioned him, or brainwashed him, which I understand is the new American word, to believe that he is co-hosting a movie review podcast. You will notice that I have told him that he has watched a Werner Herzog movie. <laughs> I've allowed my people to have a little fun in the selection of bizarre cinematic substitutes. Are you enjoying your Mary-Kate and Ashley movie marathon, Steve? Yes, ma'am. Mary-Kate and Ashley. You got it, dude, indeed. <laughs> you will notice the tears streaming down his face. A mere side effect, I assure you. All right now, Steve, are you ready to review a classic movie to see if it lives up to its reputation, whether that reputation is good or bad? Yes, ma'am. Excellent. Then let us proceed. Here is your microphone, and listen carefully if anyone asks you what you think of your co-host, Jason Harding. What will you say? Jason Harding is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. Excellent. When I finish talking, you will be back doing a podcast. Hey, Steve, where'd you go? You went blank there for a second. Oh, uh, wow, I don't, I don't remember. Oh, it doesn't matter. Hey, guys, oh. guess what? We take a classic movie and we review it to see whether or not it lives up to its reputation, whether that reputation is good or bad. And what are we reviewing this time, Steve? We are reviewing the classic political thriller, The Manchurian Candidate. Ooh, that doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in the country right now, does it? <laughs> oh, let's hope not. <laughs> That's right, the Manchuria candidate came out in 1962, right in the middle of the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. Lots of people saw it, and they went, ooh, I bet that could happen in real life. <laughs> <laughs> Too far-fetched. <laughs> so are you ready to do this? Do you want to do the who, what's it? Do you have any um, uh, 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 trivia that you want to add before we get into the meat and potatoes of this movie? Well, just that there, there's a, sort of an urban legend about the movie that it was it was pulled from circulation uh, in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination, which yeah. was just a year after this. And some people say that's true. Some people say it had nothing to do with that. But there's sort of this, it has this kind of legendary status that like after the Kennedy assassination, Frank they Sinatra say, bought yeah, back the rights and, and pulled it from circulation. Um, and that's, that doesn't... But in 74, he bought the rights back. Yeah, yeah. So and it I'd... was shown on TV in 1965. So that that, that yeah. kind of that it, it kind of breaks down, but there nonetheless it's sort of added to the movie's legendary reputation. Yeah, and I don't have anything else to add. <laughs> <laughs> Screw it! I already put my bit out there that it came out in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, so people are already paranoid about Russia as it was. Yeah, and then this movie came out, and people went, "Ooh." <laughs> I better start digging my bomb shelter faster. I wonder if my neighbor's one of them brainwashed guys. He went to Korea. Better kill him just to make sure. <laughs> better better not take any chances. Bob, Bob, I'm totally here to borrow your barbecue and not shoot you in the forehead. <laughs> 
Well, don't open with that. <laughs> not definitely not going to shoot you, Bob. Come over here. Yeah, like, yeah. Everyone listening, remember that's a, that's a pro tip from Steve. Don't open <laughs> that you're going to assassinate someone. Don't tell them you're going to kill them, or tell, don't tell them you're not going to kill them because <laughs> they'll they'll guess that you're actually going to. But you said you weren't. See, that's oh, the that's whole genius right. of it. And while they're trying to figure out why they would tell you that, boom, right there, hole, right in the middle of your forehead. <laughs> you- you trigger some confusion in them. And that's how they do it advantage. in war. The country says, we're totally not going to go to war with you. And while the general is like, wait, I thought we were going to war. <laughs> that's how things go. Oh, here come the bombs. It's a tradition. I think that's in Lutsu's Art of War, whatever his name was. <laughs> Lutsu. <laughs> Chang Yip. What was his name? Sun Tzu. Thank you. Sun Tzu. You were close. <laughs> Lutsu was his, his cousin. His cousin. He tried to write a bunch of these cash-in, tie-in books, but none of them sold nearly as well as the original. <laughs> he, he wrote a book called The Art of Soup. <laughs> it's kind of the same. Alright, let's do this freaking movie. You ready? Let's do it. Okay. The Manchurian Candidate was directed by John Frankenheimer. What other movies did he make? Oh, uh, Birdman of Alcatraz. Yeah, which came out the same year. Can you believe Quite that? Quite a year. <laughs> Quite a year for Mr. Frankenheimer, wasn't it? Uh-huh. Uh, seven Days in May. Oh, yeah, yeah. He yeah. had quite a career. He did, back in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> It was produced by George Axelrod and John Frankenheimer. Screenplay by George Axelrod, based on The Manchurian Candidate by Richard Condon. And it stars Frank Sinatra as Major Bennett Marco, Lawrence Harvey as Raymond Shaw, Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Iceland. No first name, just Mrs. Iceland. Isn't that great? No first, she doesn't need one, right? It was the good old days when women didn't have individual identities. Um, According to lore, uh, Sinatra wanted Lucille Ball. Really? Yeah, he wanted Lucille Ball to play that part. And I think it would have been a career changer for Lucille Ball, to be quite honest. I think she had yeah. the chops to pull it off. It's just that no one oh, yeah. ever let her not be Lucy, yeah. you know? And, you know, her show, I Love Lucy, had been off the air for a little while, and so I think American audience would have gotten it. I think the age difference between the mother and the son would have been a little bit more believable, mm-hmm. considering that Angela Lansbury was only three years older than Lawrence Harvey at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Janet Lee as Eugenie Rose Cheney, Henry Silva, that's right, Henry Silva as Chun Jin. Now, I would like to point out that there are a number of actors in this movie that you will recognize from TV, and Henry Silva is one of those actors that you will recognize a lot from TV, mm-hmm. and also from Star Trek, because they went to Star Trek. <laughs> but Henry Silva has been in tons and tons of TV work, you'll recognize him. Oh, and by the way, he's not Korean. Um, yeah. James yeah. Gregory, James Gregory as Senator John Yerkes. Sees Iceland, and there's another guy who you'll recognize from Star Trek and from yep. tons of other TV as well. Um, Mon- uh, Bar- he was on Barney Miller, wasn't he? Yeah, he I was. On he Bar- was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of these actors are, are TV veterans. Mm-hmm. Leslie Parrish as Jocelyn Jordan, John MacGyver as Senator Thomas Jordan. Thank you, John, for uh, filling in for getting our Mag- MacGyver uh, <laughs> name drop in there. Perfect. Um, I don't know how to pronounce this, so hang on tight. Key D. <laughs> We'll go with that. K-H-I-G-H-D-E-I-G-H as Dr. Yen Lo. James Edwards as Corporal Alan Melvin. Douglas Anderson as Colonel Milt. Albert Paulson as Zilkov. Barry Kelly as Secretary of Defense. Lloyd Corrigan as Holborn, Holborn Gaines. Madam Spivey as Female Bar- Barazovo. <laughs> I don't remember that in the movie. Okay. 
She must and, have been in there. And Reggie Nalder as Dimitri. And I think Paul Fries is the one that does the narration. Yes. You'll recognize his voice from other narr- narration he's done. For example, The War of the Worlds. It was the voice at the very beginning of The War of the Worlds that announced The War of the Worlds. And then we had a different narrator when they're doing... Do you remember that part? You don't forget. We haven't done The War of the Worlds. Uh-huh. You made The War of the Worlds <laughs> with Tom Cruise? Shut up. Music! <laughs> Jazzy music by David Amram. It Cinematograph- swings, baby. Oh, boy, does it ever. Cinematography by Lionel Linden. Edited by Ferris Webster. Distributed by United Artists. Release date, October 24th, 1962. Running time, 126 minutes. Budget, $2.2 million. Box office, $7.7 million. So it made its money back and it was a hit, right, Steve? Yeah, I would say so. Okay, well, I, I think that, so. that pretty much does it. Are you ready to go? Go into the, the political thriller, communist, um, incest, <laughs> <laughs> love on a train, beating up Korean dog guys movie of the Manchurian Candidate. I'm ready. All right, let's go. Let's 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 go get brainwashed. <laughs> okay. And go into the world of the Manchurian Candidate. Steve, take it away. <laughs> Korea, 1952. How do you know that? Uh, because it tells you on the screen. Yeah, we have There's... a we have an abrupt cold open where it's just like truck <laughs> subtitle. <laughs> Things are happening. <laughs> and as 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 uh, as suggested by the title, we find ourselves in Korea in 1952 mm-hmm. with uh, a a group of American soldiers, and uh, we meet for the first time Sergeant Raymond Shaw, who is the mm-hmm. Lawrence Harvey character. Yes, and uh, also Captain Bennett Marco, who is Sinatra's character. He likes to read. <laughs> he like and apparently he's not too discriminating. Yeah, he just <laughs> reads everything. He reads anything, <laughs> and you keep waiting for the other shoe to drop with that. But no, nope, he just likes to. Read. No, it's just a character trait. He I think Sinatra probably said it. I want my character to know how to read. Oh, great! <laughs> so, and then the writer said, "Okay, we'll show you." We know he we, he he likes to read because he has a like a, a, a flashlight taped to the window to shine on a book that he's reading. Because we see this staff truck drive up. Lawrence Harvey gets out, and Sinatra stays behind, and he's reading a book. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, well, I'm still said? I'm still reading this book, baby. <laughs> I'll be with you in just a second. I'm a crazy intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> James Joyce's cuckoo, baby, cuckoo. <laughs> I got it bad for literature. Okay, so anyway, so, um... So Joyce the... Carol Oates really puts a ring in my ding-ding. <laughs> yes! Oh, you know it's going to be a good show when you get a MacGyver <laughs> reference and a Joyce Carol Oates reference in the first, like, five minutes. Um... <laughs> So okay, so so the the, the uh, company is on maneuvers. No, they're, yeah, they're maneuvering right. around a bunch of Korean prostitutes. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. They're 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 in a bar. They're in. Mm-hmm. They're first. First, we meet them. They're in a bar, and uh, and we get the impression that nobody likes uh, Sergeant Shaw because yeah, he Sergeant comes Shaw in and, has a wet blanket. He, yeah, he ruins all their fun. Like he, they're they're all in the bar having a good time, and 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 Sergeant Shaw comes in and he's like, "Hey, stop having fun. Yeah, let's go." And they're get like, out. "We don't like him." Yeah, Saint Shaw. They don't like Sergeant Saint. Sean, but they have to yeah. go, and and then they all go out on maneuvers, right? Yeah, and this is where we meet uh, Chun Jin. Yeah, the uh, the the totally not Korean Korean character, the totally not Korean stereotype character whose dialogue makes me grit my teeth so hard yeah. that I broke broke a crown. Yeah, the 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 guy who apparently Mickey Rooney saw this performance and said, "I can beat that." <laughs> 
Um, and so he is there. He's he's the he's the Americans' guide yeah. while they're out in on on patrol. And he's and like, "Oh, me no very place where we go and too dangerous. We'll go that way." And if you think I'm being racist, guess what? It's not that far off from this character's performance. That, yeah, so it's don't really... send letters to me. <laughs> send send to letters Henry. to Henry Silva, <laughs> John Frankenheimer, that bastard. Uh, so yeah, they're they're out on patrol and they're they're ambushed. Mm-hmm. They're they're attacked and they're all taken away on a helicopter. Copter. Yep, and then we get the credits. Yeah, um, which are uh, just they're they're kind of quasi animated. They're kind you know? of TV credits. Yeah, yeah, they're very TV credits, and and it's you know, we, it's like a Queen of Diamonds motif because that card becomes very important. Because that's later super on. important. Yeah, and so then after the credits, um, we cut to after yeah. the war, or I guess yeah. ha- at least after they this, these these guys have come home. And how do uh, we know it's after the war, Steve? Because our 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 helpful narrator informs us. <laughs> I love it when the narration comes up to let us know that, like, time has passed and things have happened. Yeah. And then he's like, goodbye. <laughs> no, he shows up once more. There's one more he little shows bit up of a explanatory couple more times, yeah. narration, but then he doesn't, he's not with us for the entire movie. Um, yeah, but he tells us that um, uh, Raymond Shaw won the uh, Medal of Honor. Yeah. And he's going to get it from the president because he saved everybody in that group that we saw earlier. You know, that group, that's weird because we saw them getting taken away in helicopters by a bunch of Russian guys. Yeah, but apparently Sergeant Shaw saved all their lives. Yeah, we saw Shun Jin shake hands with a Russian guy and then look all evil. Yeah, hmm, I wonder if mm. that's going to pay off any time later. Who knows? He kind of uh, just disappears like a fart in the wind in the movie, but it doesn't. Really <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so 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 Sergeant Shaw is is uh, getting off the plane, and you know all the generals snap to attention uh, because yep. the, the the narrator explains that uh, a Medal of Honor winner showing up uh, is sufficient to make all the generals salute. You know, yeah, because it's. Because they're so really happy. Big, it's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Shaw comes off the plane, and there's this huge crowd of people who are there to you know cheer for him and celebrate him. And and also there is his mother, yeah. played by Angela Lansbury, and his stepfather, yeah. who is uh, Senator John Iceland, who is mm-hmm. we we learn not only a senator but also an aspiring like presidential candidate. Yeah, um, and a and, big pile of shit. And yeah, not not the best a representative big, of democracy. dumb puppet. <laughs> yeah, and and it, it turns out. And you know his mother shows up, and they they hold up a, like a, a banner over him, and people are taking pictures. And, yeah, and, and and it says Iceland's boy or something. Yeah, like yeah. And Shaw just hates all of this, and he's like, mm-hmm. "Mother, this was your idea." And she's like, "Shut up." We've done so much for you, and blah blah blah. Yeah. And then the narrator tells us that he got his his award. Yeah. We don't see that part, <laughs> and we see the the uh, Iceland family getting into a private jet. That they say, "Hey, do you know what? Um, the the, the people uh, who backed Iceland's." campaign bought it for us as a gift isn't that great and we're like "Uh uh-huh and and then shaw goes fuck you mother i'm not going to help you i'm going to go work for a newspaper yeah and not just any newspaper but a newspaper owned by a publisher who is an enemy of the icelands yeah and and if you're an enemy of the icelands they they call they say that you're a communist yeah they love calling everybody communists everybody's Everybody's, a communist that's right because everybody was a communist especially (laughs) hollywood yeah (laughs) Bunch, bunch of lousy commies. <laughs> Iceland was right. And he's like, goodbye, mother. 
And then he leaves. And then the narrator comes back. And what does the narrator get to tell us this time? He informs us that uh, now that the war is over, Captain Marco has been promoted to major and he has been reassigned to Washington to Army Intelligence. Yeah, but that's not what we see. We see a bunch of books. Yep. And then we see good old Frank Sinatra sweating it up in bed. Yep. And <laughs> By the could... way, guys, bring a sponge when you watch this because there's so much sweat in this movie. <laughs> You get the impression that Frank was, he kept asking for more sweat. Put more sweat on me. Put I more, more sweat, sweat on baby. Me. Sweat me equals drama. <laughs> when I have a bad dream, I sweat like gangbusters. More sweat. That man never had a bad dream in his life. No. Anyway. What the hell would Frank Sinatra have nightmares about? So we see him and he's tossing and turning and the, yeah. and the narrator tells us that he's been having a series of bad dreams almost every single night. Yep. And then we crossfade into one of his bad dreams. Yeah. And what's in the bad dream, Steve? Well, in the dream, it's uh, Marco and Shaw and the rest of, of their company that was that we saw get captured. Yeah. And at first we see them sitting at like a, a ladies flower, like a gardening club meeting. Yeah. Where they're all sitting around behind this one lady who's doing all the talking and then there's some other mm-hmm. ladies like sitting in a, in a half circle in front of them but yeah. then we it, it keeps cutting away to to the exact same scene but instead of the ladies in the garden club it's this Chinese doctor who is explaining about how they've all been brainwashed and he's talking yeah. to this gallery of what look like Chinese and Russian uh, like officials that are watching yes. the whole thing and there's like big posters of like Mao Zedong and Stalin, Stalin. and uh, pictures of native peoples of Russia and all this stuff. It looks like a great affair. I, I bet the catering to that was fantastic. It, it was the social event of the season <laughs> in Manchuria. Anyway, so these guys are all brainwashed and they're up there and the Chinese guys, and well, the Russian people are like, prove it, have them kill somebody. Because under hypnosis, which is totally a thing, that <laughs> that they say that people under hypnosis won't do anything that's morally reprehensible. So uh, have them kill one of those guys. Here, um, and he's like, okay, give me the knife. And he's like, no, I want him to do it with his hands. Here, take this take this scarf and the Chinese guy goes up to Raymond gives him the scarf and he says will you please uh, strangle the person that you like the the most and he's like well that's Frank Sinatra oh well he's elite don't you know yeah he can't you can't kill Sinatra <clears throat> who's, who's, who's number two and, and then they say it's what's his face I don't know <laughs> yeah I don't know go kill what's his face Ma- and uh, Mavol, he, I think. Yeah, and he yeah. goes up to him and he puts the thing around his neck. Mavol goes, "Hey, what's going on?" And then the Chinese guy goes, "Calm down, you're helping out." And he's like, "Okay." And then he lets uh, lets uh, Raymond strangle him. And then um, Frank Sinatra pees his bed and wakes up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So then what do we cut to next, Steve? <laughs> now that they've given us the entire plot, yeah. it's not like a mystery. Oh, by the way, guys, it's not like a mystery. It's not something that we need no. to figure out. They pretty much tell us right up front. It's very direct and straightforward. And <laughs> I, I guess the next scene is is Marco talking to his superiors about the dream. Mm. And, say, and, and also there's a psychiatrist there. And he's like, I'm having these really trippy dreams, baby. And they're like, <laughs> and they're like, and, and they're like so you're just having a dream. Get, get a hold of yourself. And he's like, no, but I mean, what, the guy I saw saw strangled in the dream is one of the guys that were reported lost in the action yeah, that, that supposedly that, that he won the medal of honor for isn't that weird yeah. and they're like eh, whatever and, and they go hey how do you really feel about uh, about uh, uh, Sergeant Sh- Raymond or Captain Shaw. Raymond yeah. Shaw and what does he say he says Raymond Shaw is the kindest bravest warmest most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life and doesn't he get a distant far away look when he says it yeah and no one else in the room goes that's weird hmm. <laughs> 
because we always heard he was kind of a dick. Oh no! Well, no. let's see. No, well, let's see your reports from the from the, when you were serving with him. Dick, 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 dick. You guys <laughs> capture that machine gun's nest. The warmest. <laughs> it just says the same thing over and over again. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> yeah. No, nope, nothing uh, suspicious here. <laughs> a week before the action, your 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 report. You just wrote in all caps. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. <laughs> your very last one was just a drawing of a dick that says his name and an arrow pointing at it. <laughs> I don't remember doing that, sir. You're cuckoo. Hey. I'm later, cats. <laughs> Time for me so, to split. What do we cut to next? Um, well, they, they, they reassign Major Marco. They say, yeah. we're going to take you out of intelligence and we're going to put you in public relations because that'll, yeah. be, that'll be a less strenuous duty and you can chill yeah, out. Yeah, dealing with reporters will be so much better. Yeah, so we cut to him doing his duty as, as the public relations guy and he's sitting next to the Secretary of Defense at a press conference yep. where at first it's sort of they're 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 talking about cutting the defense budget isn't that uh, cute yeah <laughs> we're, we're talking about cutting the defense budget it was just totally a thing that we'll do someday yeah it's that's nice it's what a what a quaint old-fashioned movie <laughs> we'll cut the defense budget as, so, as soon as there's no such thing as war how about that yeah and <laughs> So the while they're while they're while, while the Secretary of Defense is like, yeah, we're gonna you know the you know what the Navy's just too big. We're just gonna cut the budget because there's just too much Navy guys. And then Senator Iceland, yeah, we have six whole ships. We don't need six. Yeah. Like, what are we doing with all these ships for real? It's not like we're gonna need to blockade anything. <laughs> If only um, we had another war to get involved with, yeah. which would up our defense budget. Well, that'll <laughs> never happen. That's weird. Um, so, so then Senator Iceland, who is there watching the press conference, stands up, yep. and all the cameras, of course, swing over to his face, and and he starts going off on this tirade about uh, how it's 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 outrageous that he's promoting these defense budget cuts when there are two hundred and seven card carrying communists, or one hundred and seventy five, or yeah, sixty. The, yeah, or he said whatever. he says 207 first and then after he's done with his little tirade and he's leaving the reporters ask him like how many communists did you say he's like oh 104 and then uh, who's with him his wife yeah watching the whole thing watching the whole thing and he kind of looks he gives her the side eye a few times like how am I doing babe you know and Mm -hmm. she's like yeah good job you're you're doing great lover couldn't stand that they called each other babe and lover through the whole movie it's gross And then uh, eventually, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Major Marco gets up and, and after he leaves, goes after him, <laughs> even though the Secretary of Defense says, get him out of here. And he just sits there at the desk. He's like, uh, what? Yeah. What do you uh, mean? Get a re-? He's leaving. So, you know, all the reporters follow him out and he's like, goodbye. And he leaves. And then that scene's over. <laughs> Where do we go now, Steve? Uh, we cut to one of the other members of the platoon. Oh, that's right. That, that was I, captured. I can't. I remember his name his name is corporal melvin corporal melvin and he's in bed with his wife yeah and he doesn't get a narrator no but he's he's just a guy but he's got the sweats yeah he's having the same dream and then we crossfade into the same place again except because it just so happens that we pick Kirk, up where we left off thankfully we, we pick up where we left off and we also notice some subtle differences or maybe some
some not so subtle differences. Like Corporal, yeah. Corporal Melvin happens to be a black man, and in his memory of the garden party scene, all of the ladies in the garden club are black ladies. It's a nice touch. Yeah, actually, yeah. I appreciated that. And, um, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So it, what's uh, his face has gotten strangled. Yeah. The 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 second favorite has been strangled, mm-hmm. and then someone says, uh, "Well, um, now we need to know if uh, if I, I forget what the justification, is, but they tell him to shoot somebody." Yeah, they're like, "This they, isn't good enough. We wanted yeah. more death." The thing on on the program it said number one, tea and cookies before reception, which were adequate. Then it said floor <laughs> show and the dancing girls and the yaks were great. Then it said um, Doctor <laughs> Doctor <laughs> Yen Ho Lo and his amazing mesmerized Americans that promised two deaths and we only got one. We want another one, or I want a refund on my ticket. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's at this point they also they ask uh, Colonel Marco what what he's going to do like when he gets back from when he, when he gets back to Korea and he says, yeah. "Well, I'm going to I'm going to tell everybody that Raymond Shaw saved us all and he should be recommended for the Medal of Honor." Right. They also uh, casually drop in there that they he he says that they're so well hypnotized that you that some of them are smoking cigarettes on the stage and mm. uh, they're not actually smoking cigarettes, they're smoking yak down cuz ha 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 ha. Fuck these American pigs. <laughs> we're evil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're that really <laughs> sells them as evil. Not they're not that they're brainwashing people and turning them into assassins. They're making them smoke shit cigarettes. Yeah. So then oh. uh, Dr. Yenlo says, uh, uh, please, uh, hey, Marco, please give uh, uh, Shaw your gun. And he goes, here you go. And he's like, thank you. Now shoot the, the youngest, cutest guy in, in your in your patrol. Oh, you mean the mascot? Yeah, just shoot him. And what does he do, Steve? He shoots him. Yeah, he shoots him and his chair flies back and yep. someone throws a bunch of strawberry preserves on a poster. <laughs> and... <laughs> Close his head clean off. Now, I would like to say, in 1962, that shot, that scene where Strawberry Preserves hit the hit the poster, probably made a lot of people leave or throw up. Oh, yeah, because the the convention at the time was very much bloodless killings. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean. So even the implication, and this is less of an implication and more, more or less just showing someone's brain matter being sprayed across a poster, that was not something that I don't think very many people were prepared for. Um, but then Melvin wakes up yeah and and his wife is like um are you gonna just keep having this nightmare because <laughs> i can't sleep through it. i'm really tired <laughs> or are you gonna get some help and she says why don't you write to sergeant shaw and he's like oh sergeant shaw the bravest kindest warmest most wonderful human being i've ever known in my life he'll know what to well, do yeah, that's not weird right and no, she's like know. every time i ask you about him you do the same thing he's like what are you talking about he's Shut the up. bravest warmest kindest most wonderful human being i've ever met in my whole life like, who sergeant shaw yes he's the bravest kind <laughs> <laughs> are you getting it <laughs> so he writes a letter to Sergeant Shaw and we cut yeah. to Sergeant Shaw in in his apartment in New York yeah. reading the letter and uh-huh. and in the uh, in the letter Corporal Melvin describes Shaw as his best friend in in the army which yeah. Shaw seems he he gives kind of a look like what and then oh. the phone rings and he's like oh fuck this guy's letter and he picks up the phone and a voice on the phone says Raymond why don't you pass the time by playing a little solitaire and, and he's like wow that's a great idea so Raymond grabs a a, a deck of cards that happens yeah. to be just a few feet away Way, and he, and he mm-hmm. just starts playing solitaire and he uh-huh. turns he turns up the queen of diamonds and he stops Uh-oh. yeah yeah and then the guy on the phone says you got the queen of diamonds and he's like uh-huh he's like all right cool and he says uh in about a week someone's going to show up and pick you up at 11 a.m or 11 10 a.m i think and we're going to yeah. take you to this place and it's it's a sanitarium and we want to give you a little bit of a checkup okay and he's like okay great sounds good and he hangs up and he hangs up and then we cut to uh mr Gaines, his boss at the newspaper 
being yeah. told that Shaw is has been the victim of a hit and run. Yeah. Did that actually happen? I you know, I I don't think it did because when It he, did not. Because <laughs> because we cut to him in the hospital and he seems perfectly fine except for some fake bandages. Well they are fake bandages. They put a fake bandage on his head. <laughs> they have a big bandage helmet that he puts on his head. Yeah. Everyone in the hospital is make pretend that he got in a in a hit and run. I'm trying to figure out how they fabricated the hit and run accident since all he did was show up at a place. Did someone call in and say, hey, this guy got hit, hit and run. Well, where is he now? Nowhere. Click. (laughs) (laughs) He's fine. Don't ask any more questions. Bye. That's right. Goodbye. So now we're in this hospital and who shows up, Steve? It's, uh, well, we we see um, a a Russian guy named uh, Zilkov and also here is Dr. Yen Lo from the dreams that uh, Marco and uh, the other guy had. Yeah. Yeah. And And he's just there to make sure that all of the brainwashing is still in there. Right. Because it's been a few years at this point. Yeah. And since they got to make sure. Him. Yeah. And they're like, well, how are we going to do that? And he's like, well, <laughs> yeah, I guess he's got to kill somebody, I guess. Right? Yeah, and Yen Lo says, because uh, Yen Lo is kind of, un- Yen-, Yen Lo thinks it's not necessary to have him kill somebody. He's like, no, he'll do what he's supposed to do. Don't worry about it. And Zilkov is like, no, we need to make sure that he's still wired right. And uh-huh. Yen Lo says, okay, well, why don't we just tell him to kill one of your people? We'll just tell him to go out in the hallway and shoot somebody. Oh, well, and- he he kind of makes a side glance and say, oh, well, I will have him kill you. Yeah. <laughs> and then and- he's like, I'm just shitting with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He-, he keeps he keeps kidding Zilkov. Like, you got to have a sense of humor, man. And we got to make sure that all this is in place before we hand him off to his American handlers. Dun, dun, dun. I whoever wonder who those mean. people are going to be. Who, who, whoever those, pe- those people are. Um, so <laughs> so they, they say, okay, well, we got to have him kill somebody. And yep. Yen Lo says, well, as long as we're going to have him kill somebody, we might as well have him kill somebody that, you know, it'll do us some good. So why don't we have him kill his boss at the newspaper? Yeah. That way, you know, he'll probably be promoted and get that guy's job. And then we yep. have our brainwashed guy in charge of this newspaper. It'll be great for yeah, everybody. isn't that great? It's worth all the expense we went through, right? To have a, a <laughs> have a publisher of a newspaper. That's that. That's why we did all this, right? <laughs> it's a, it's just a fun little bonus. <laughs> It's very apparent that we can get in and out of the country with no harassment at all. I don't understand why we just don't have someone else kill him and put our own operative in there, but okay. Yeah. We did the brainwashing. We don't want it to go to waste, I guess. You mean you might as well get as much work out of him as you can. So what happens? Oh, well, they tell they tell him to go kill Mr. Gaines. Uh-huh. So he goes to Mr. Gaines' house at 4 o'clock in the morning, and it just so happens that Mr. Gaines is, is still awake. Yeah. And he's wearing his wife's robe. Oh, no. And well, that's because he says it's comfortable. Yeah, he says, look, don't get the wrong idea. I'm I'm only wearing my dead wife's robe because it's the warmest thing I've got. It also makes me feel more comfortable and closer to her, more feminine. Yeah, look, there's just a whole bunch of issues that we don't need to get into right now. I wear her panties because they're easy off and it makes it easier to go to the bathroom and I wear all of her clothes around the house because, um, why are you here? I just like nice (laughs) things, okay? How did Um, you get in my house? Yeah, and, and, and Raymond says, they told me you'd be asleep. Yeah. And Gaines is like, what's that mean? And then Raymond shoots him. Well, no, we, we don't see what he uh, does. No, that's, that's true. We just, he just, he just moves in on him and the camera zooms in on his back and we fade yeah. to the next scene. So it's, it, it turns out that he kills him. Okay. Uh, we don't so, actually see it though. Yeah. Right. So is this where we get the scene where, uh, the military goes up to, uh, Frank Sinatra and says, you suck at media relations. Yeah. Yeah. The, his, his, his supervisor, <laughs> um, Colonel, oh, Colonel remember. Milt, Colonel Milt. Yes. Colonel Milt goes, comes, comes to his apartment and this is where we have the scene where he's explaining Oh yeah, I read everything. Yeah, I read you know, you know everything, anything, and everything. He's yeah. like, there's stacks of newspapers in here. Um, are you sure you're reading? Well, I'll get to those eventually. <laughs> 
I can't throw anything away. <laughs> you seem like you've turned into kind of a hoarder. You know, there's a lot of uh, issues of muscle man here. Um, is there anything you want to talk to us about? No, baby. I just yeah. love the way those muscles ripple. Yeah. You keep your nose <laughs> out of my business, Jack. <laughs> um, I couldn't help but notice that there's a stack of Animal Lover magazine here. <laughs> but they, you know, they basically, they don't fire him, but they tell him, you got to go on a vacation. Yeah, or they, they, he, say, he says, you're, you're being placed on indefinite sick leave. Yeah. Which is the nice way of saying, get, just get out. Just go yeah, away. Just go, whatever. Yeah. Go, just leave. So what do we cut to? Uh, he, what we cut to Marco on a train. Oh, that's right. Oh, it's this scene. Yeah. Where we find out that Marco has difficulty lighting a cigarette. We like, like <laughs> an, an unusually high level of difficulty. And this apparently tingles the nether regions of Janet Lee, who's watching him try to light yeah. a cigarette. <laughs> Who is sitting a few feet away, not, you know, coincidentally. And, uh, and she's like, oh, he's cute, like a little baby a baby duck that is trying desperately to get nicotine. It's 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 so endearing. Yeah, and, and he, I think he, he, no, he notices her sort of looking at him, and he gets up and leaves, and he knocks over a table while he's while He knocks he's over leaving. the entire table while he's leaving. Yeah, and he goes out to the outside of the train car, like to the, the, the little... The connecting Yeah, the, connecting the platform area. between the cars, yeah. Yeah. And she follows him out and lights a cigarette and gives it to him. They have a banter. Yeah, they ha- they they have like... Uh, it's like a meet-cute without the cute part. Yeah, without the cute part, because uh, Frank Sinatra doesn't seem like he wants to be in that room at all or talk to anybody. Yeah. He's he's very monosyllabic. Yeah, and I mean, he yeah, exactly. He engages her in conversation and he asks her questions and stuff, but he seems very uncomfortable the whole time, you know? Yeah, yeah. Sweating. Yeah. Always with getting sprayed with the spray bottle between shots. Yeah. More sweat. <laughs> She's a beautiful dame. I need more sweat. <laughs> I would like to applaud the film for uh, getting two actors that look like they're pretty much in the same age range. Yes. Rather than having some 22-year-old girl falling in love with this middle-aged man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And well, it, they find out that neither one of them are married. Yeah, that's right. And she gives him his, his ad, her address in New York and her phone number. And that scene's over. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Yo, and he tells her, he, he he does tell her at the very end that the reason he's going to New York is to look up his old friend who he was in Korea with. Yeah, and we missed a scene where uh, Raymond Shaw is looking to find, after he's killed his publisher, he's looking for an assistant or a person oh, or a something. Yes. And the person that's interviewing is who, Steve? Chun Jin. <gasps> Chun Jin! Does he yeah. even recognize Chun Jin? He doesn't. He's like, you. Uh, do I know you? <laughs> I don't even think he does that, does he? No, no. You know, I think, do they even, does Chun Jin even tell him that they uh, no. that they knew each other? I don't think he recognizes him No, he just pretends. All. He yeah. just pretends. And he's like, okay, I'm going to hire you. You're going to be a cook and everything else for me. And Chun Jin's like, yippity, yippity, idiot. And <laughs> <laughs> Great. So now we got to uh, uh, old Blue Eyes coming into uh, the building that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, Raymond lives in and the, the thing that I love about this scene is the elevator operator who looks like he cannot be bothered to even be in the movie because he's like slouched <laughs> and smoking a cigarette and he just kind of points in the direction of the <laughs> yeah hey, it's up there <laughs> and uh, uh, you know he ring-a-ding-dings on the doorbell <laughs> and the door opens and who's there Steve it's Chun Jin and, and oh. then they get oh they start a great big old Shatner fight <laughs> Marco Marco remembers him <laughs> 
<laughs> they start chop socking all oh. over the place, and if you do, you think you you thought that Kirk's moves were ridiculous. Boy. You haven't seen anything until you've seen Frank Sinatra mimic Aquino. <laughs> oh man, he's doing the poses and everything. I mean, it's like he's it is it is awesome. Now, a cute little bit of trivia is that there is a scene where he comes down to uh, chop saki on Chun Jin, and he uh, takes out uh, the the piano. Yeah, he takes a chunk out of the piano with his hand. Um, he permanently damaged his hand doing that um, to the point in which they, he had to have surgery in order to fix it. he had a lifelong injury because of this movie wow. and because of this ridiculous fight scene that just goes on and on I've seen better choreographed fight scenes in the Pink Panther movies between <laughs> Kato and Inspector Cluzo which is what this started to remind me of and but the important thing is during the fight Marco is is demanding answers from Chun Jin yeah. he's saying what was Raymond doing with his hands over and over again what was Raymond doing with his hands and how did the generals get into that lady's thing or yeah. something like that? Yeah, he's like basically he's he's asking him for explanations about stuff that he remembers in his dream. In his dream, which is something a crazy person does. <laughs> <laughs> and he's uh, finally gets Chun Jin on the ground and he's got his arm in a lock and he's <laughs> kicking him in, in the torso and then the cops show up. Yeah, and they drag him away. Yeah, I wonder why. Just because he's beating the shit out of somebody on the ground. <laughs> That's weird. And don't worry, we never see Chun Jin again. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, we, yeah, the next, the next we see of Marco is he's at the police station. Yeah, and uh, Janet Lee, Eugenie from from uh, the the train has from come the to pick twain. him up. Yeah, and he's not under arrest or in jail for assault or anything. No, really. I guess he they. Hey, I'm in the army, Pally. Okay. <laughs> You can go. And so she picks him up. They get in the cab, and she says, oh, uh, I was talking to my fiancé. And he's like, hey, fiancé. <laughs> and she's like, well, I never said I was married, but I didn't say I was engaged. But anyway, from that brief, <laughs> awkward exchange with a sweaty man in between train cars, I broke off my engagement with him because I'm in love with you. Time to kiss. Yeah, right? It's good to that be pretty much king. sums up yeah, pretty much. that weird scene between the two of them. Yeah. <laughs> So what happens next, dude? Um, so there's there's uh there, there's a scene between uh Shaw and Marco where uh Shaw's like, "Why'd you break into my apartment and beat up all my yeah, stuff?" Yeah, because because Marco goes back yeah to the to the apartment to the scene of the crime, and Shaw's there, and Shaw's trying to clean up, and he's like, "Hey, I've been having these cuckoo dreams," and he's like, "Uh huh," just like what's his name had, and he's like, "Yeah, we've had the same dream," and he's like, "Uh huh." <laughs> And then that scene's over, right? Yeah, <laughs> like but, but really he mentions Shaw does mention he mentions the letter that he got from from Melvin and how yeah. and how Melvin said that he was his best friend and he was like, but that was weird because you all hated me. Yeah, I'm not lovable. Yeah, get get ready to hear that 900 yeah. times. Oh, it's a tender scene. Raymond Shaw has a quest for lovability. Yeah, in this movie, <laughs> he does. He doesn't necessarily want to behave in a lovable way. No, <laughs> he he's mostly be... a robot for most of the movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what happens after that? Well, so so uh, Marco goes to Washington, and he meets with his superiors again, and and the, and the psychiatrist, and they're showing him photographs, and it's a and they're of, a jumble of photographs. Some of them are just nobodies, yeah. and some of them are very important people in Russia, yeah, and China. And Marco picks out two photographs of people that he remembers from his dream, uh-huh. uh, and those are the people who were like the Russian people in the photographs. Yeah. And everyone him, in the room collectively shits their pants at the same time. Yeah, be, because they tell him that Corporal Mel. Melvin went through the same test and he picked out the same people. Uh oh, so that means Yes. Um, so now they know that like the dreams weren't just dreams. Yeah. yeah. We got some brainwashing here. Uh oh. So did they assign uh Marco a, a psychiatrist to unbrainwash him? Uh no. Oh that's weird. No, actually. Did they assign a 
a non-brainwasher to uh, Shaw to unbrainwash him? No, they don't. Oh, so what do they do to counteract this brainwashing plot? They create a task force that includes the <laughs> CIA and the FBI, as well as oh, Army great. Intelligence, to to uh, to work on it. And they 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 kind of put Marco sort of in charge of it. And this basically yeah, they just 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 keep an eye on Shaw and, and watch him and see if you can figure out what he what he's supposed to do. Okay, Colonel, I think the best person for the job is one of the brainwashed people. Yeah, to put him in charge of the other brainwashed people. This can't possibly go wrong. Nope. <laughs> So uh, then we have a nice little scene where Marco shows up and um, uh, they're drinking. Yeah, he and Shaw get drunk. It's Christmas time. Yeah. And, supposedly. And Shaw talks about how much he hates his mother. And then we get a flashback. Yeah, because he <laughs> says, he says, I hate my mother. I hate the shit out of my mother. My mother's terrible, but I never used to hate her. I used yeah, to and be... we've had a couple of scenes in here where we cut to the Icelands and they're talking about campaign shit and yeah. commies and, and, and Senator Iceland's like, it would really help if you told me how many communists there are in the Defense Department. And so they settle on 57 because he's uh, using a bottle of Heinz 57. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and now, now we cut to the flashback. And what's the flashback all about, Steve? The flashback is about how uh, the year before he joined the army, when he mm-hmm. was the exact same age, mm-hmm. um, Shaw fell in love with a girl at their summer house. Uh-oh. And the girl was named Josie. And it just uh-huh. so happens that she was the daughter of another senator, Senator Jordan, who yeah. was a great enemy and rival of the Icelands. Yeah. And he- she called the Icelands called him a commie, too. Yeah. And he and sued her. He sued her um and so and one uh, yeah and one he said it cost her like sixty thousand dollars in court costs and you know that taught her a lesson clearly um, and <laughs> and so 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 shaw and josie they meet they fall in love he asks her to marry him like the, f- the same day you and know? that's when we get to see him laugh for the first time and yeah. act like a human being yeah it's weird because he's now lovable he's lovable because this is a big thing he's like i'm not lovable people don't love me but there was a time when i was lovable and we're now we're going to have an extended flashback about me being lovable <laughs> look at look at the lovability um but it turns out that mama uh his mama don't like that no because and- she's like uh, she calls her a commie tart yeah and says, uh, you know, we're we're at war, son. It's a cold war, but still, we're at war. And I can't let you yeah. get married to the daughter of some commie. Yeah, that's bad. That's bad. So break up with her. Yeah. And he does. Yes. And he, he cries. He's upset. He's like being a human being. Frank Sinatra's like, hey, kid, don't be all cuckoo gaga or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> And so they agree that they're going to meet at a bar later on, right? Yeah. And we sh- we show uh, Raymond walk into the bar, and there's uh, some barflies sitting there talking about poker. And yeah. at some guy, the guy says, "Well, why don't you play poker? Why don't you play a nice game of solitaire?" And then and then Raymond's like, "Give me a deck of cards," and gives him a deck of cards, and he plays solitaire. And then he sees the Queen of Diamonds, and he stands there. And then the guy, at the end of the bar, says, "Why don't you jump in a lake?" Because he's talking about something else. And then Frank Sinatra shows up, and he's like, "Hey, cat, what's going on?" And, and then he leaves, and Frank Sinatra's like, "Dirt!" and he. He runs after him, and then Shaw takes a taxi cab to Central Park, walks out to a lake, and jumps in it. Yeah, and, and Frank Sinatra sees the whole thing. He's like, "What was all that about?" And once he <laughs> after after having jumped in the lake, like uh, Shaw snaps out of it, and, yeah. he, and he looks up at Marco, and he's like, "Why am I in a lake?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and so uh, then something. Well, happens. yeah, he goes. Marco Marco goes back to his to the rest of his team, and yeah. he's like, "Yeah, he was uh, no." He he, he talks to 
over with Shaw at the lake, and he's like, "Wait a minute, you were playing solitaire, and then the bartender said something, and then you know, and, and he, John, yeah, and then you did the thing the bartender said, yeah, and he he and, deduces that it had to do with with the Red Queen because he remembers yeah, the because Queen he of remembers what he was doing with his hands because yeah. in the, in the in the flashback scenes to the to the thing where the people got killed in the Chinese and the Soviets, he's doing something with his hands and he's he's miming playing, playing solitaire. solitaire, and so he's like, it must be solitaire. Should we act now? No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's maintain a, a, a discreet distance and keep watching him. For his safety and other people's safety, maybe we should bring him in and try to deprogram. No, we're not going to do that. That'd be stupid. But we could thwart whatever plan they have if we just take him into custody. <laughs> uh, no, but no, then, no. But now Mama Iceland has discovered that Jocelyn has returned after a few years living abroad, and now she wants to throw a party for her return, a costume party, right? Yeah, yes. And she wants Raymond to marry her because they she thinks it would be a good political match. Yeah. Right? Yeah, she's, she says, hey, you know, times change. Come on. Yeah. So now we have a big costume party. And th- throughout this thing, there's a lot of Lincoln imagery associated with the Icelands. Yeah. They have, like, portraits of Lincoln and busts of Lincoln. Boy, how And surprise, surprise, uh, the senator dresses up like Lincoln at this costume party. <laughs> and Raymond is dressed up like a gaucho. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, uh, Mrs. Iceland is dressed like Lobo Peep. And <laughs> she meets, she's like, Raymond, let's go talk quietly in another room okay because you're upsetting and they go in another room and what happens Steve well once the door is shut uh, Mrs. Iceland turns and says to Raymond why don't you pass the time by playing a little solitaire oh no she's the American handler (laughs) no And then he gets to the Queen of Hearts, but before he can do anything, there's a knock on the door that says, hey, Senator Jordan's here. And she's like, okay, you stay here. I'm going to go talk to Senator Jordan. Yeah, yeah. And she takes the Queen of Diamonds with her. Yeah. And then she goes out, meets Senator Jordan, and she's like, hey, look, um, we're going to propose that uh, my husband, Senator Iceland, is is up for the vice presidential spot. Are you going to block us? And he goes, I'll fucking, uh, you're lucky I don't have a weapon right here right now, lady, because I would stab it through your eyes and then defile your corpse right now. I hate you so much. And she's like, that's all I wanted to know. (laughs) And he says the only reason he's there is because of his daughter. Yeah. Because, you know, it would make her happy because she wants to see Raymond. She does see Raymond, doesn't she? (laughs) Yeah. She's uh, she's outside the like on the patio on the deck, like outside the room that Raymond is in after he played solitaire. And he's he's just just sitting sitting there there. like a yeah, like a statue waiting orders. Yeah. And so uh, Josie goes in and it just so happens that she is dressed as the Queen of Hearts. No, she's not. She ha- well, she's, she, she's dressed like a superhero whose theme is the yeah, Queen of Hearts. Yeah, she has a big Queen of Hearts <laughs> on her front. Yeah, she has a big Queen of Hearts on her front, and, and Raymond sees her, and he's like, oh, hey. What a dink. God, you look so hot right now. I can't even explain it, but... <laughs> And so they they leave, right? Yeah. And uh, Mrs. Iceland comes back and goes, huh, uh-oh. <laughs> and she sees the big Queen of Hearts costume part that she took off. Yeah, this ain't good. No, it's not. <laughs> and then um, we have some stuff in which we discover that Frank Sinatra and um, Eugenie Rose yeah. are kind of living together, I guess. Yeah, and, and he says they should get married. Yeah, that's right. And then they hear on the TV that, uh, that there's love, apparently, between the two houses, the Capulets and yeah. the... 
Montagues and the, oh, yeah. <laughs> that, but that things are bad between uh, Senator Jordan and the and the Icelands and the, oh, what's going to happen? Oh, and there's going to be a, a, a president. You know, they're having their convention soon. Yeah, and this is thanks for the news bomb TV. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also during this scene that that Marco shows uh, Rosie his trick deck of cards that are yeah. that are all, uh, all every card is a Queen of Hearts, and he says, "How did he figure that out?" I, I he he deduced it when they were talking about it during that when he, when they were back at the lake when he said like you you the you, you overturn the queen of diamonds and all of a sudden like he it's yeah. it's, it's, it's a big leap uh-huh. <laughs> but he makes the he, leap no he makes the leap with the psychiatrist that's working as part of the team oh that's right because they're yeah. sitting there playing cards yeah that's right they're playing solitaire and that's when and the yeah. psychiatrist says psychiatric yeah. bullshit bullshit the card represents mother blah 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 yeah and he's like yeah the queen of diamonds that looks like it yeah you're cooking with gas there cat I think we've got a shin diggerino or some other fucking shit I say <laughs> some other fucking shit um, yeah so and, and he, t- he 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 says I'm gonna take this deck of cards that's nothing but queen of hearts and I'm gonna use this to deprogram yeah. Raymond so he goes back to Raymond's apartment and he's waiting there for Raymond and then Raymond comes in and Raymond's happy yeah he's and super happy Jocelyn's with him and yeah. he's he's like I'm so happy yay for me we got married we're still in our costumes I'm gonna go in another room and then Sinatra takes Jocelyn aside because he thinks maybe Jocelyn could be an agent yeah. because she was wearing a Queen of Diamonds costume. And she's like, no, I really love him. What's going on? And he says, look, his brain's all cuckoo. You can't, you can't, you can't possibly be with him. He's sick. And she's like, what? And he's like, yeah. And she's like, I can make him better. And he's like, against my better judgment, I'll give you two days. Yeah. Right? And then you've got to hit the bricks, toots. Yeah, we got to bring him in. I don't yeah. know why we just don't bring him in. Why he aren't we bringing to, him in, Josie? He wants to let him have a honeymoon. <laughs> he's going to give him two days to have a nice honeymoon. That's right. And then he's going to take him away. So then uh, they go, they imply that they've had sex. Then Shaw sees on the TV about the whole thing about his mom and his and Senator Iceland says he's keep going on about the communist thing. Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to go bust my mom in the mush. <laughs> yeah, because they, they say something about uh, Senator Jordan. Mm-hmm. And he's there with Josie and he's like, all right, the hell with this. I'm going to go tell him not to talk shit about your dad anymore. Yeah. And so he goes over there and then the mom breaks out the deck of cards again. <laughs> and what does she tell him to do? She says for him to go kill Senator Jordan. Uh-huh. And so uh, here's your gun with a silencer on it. Yeah. Here's a kiss on your forehead from Mommy. Go have fun. Yeah. <laughs> go he, go kill for me, baby. And Senator Senator Jordan's there making a sandwich. And uh, he's like, oh, Raymond, I totally trust you. I'm so glad that you and Josie are married. Things are wonderful. And uh, Shaw's like, uh-huh. And <laughs> then uh, Shaw shoots him in the milk carton and then shoots him in the head while he's on the ground. Josie sees that happen and then... And he shoots Josie in the head. Yep. And then he walks away from the house with tears streaming down his face. Yeah. He goes back to mom. No, he just disappears. Yeah, he just disappears. He go. He we don't see him again until he calls Marco. Mm-hmm. And then Marco comes in. Marco comes into his apartment, and uh, Eugenie's there, and he's got a newspaper that says great big letters that the Jordan and the daughter has been killed, and he's like Shaw killed him, and she says it doesn't say anything like that in the newspaper, and he's like yeah I know, but I know it was him, and I I bear responsibility for that, which was I didn't expect him to do that. But yeah, he took responsibility yeah. for it. <laughs> wow, a character making a mistake and then <laughs> making that mistake a part of his character and a part of the story? That's weird. So now he's back with the rest of the team who have done nothing. <laughs> and 
And uh, Shaw calls calls him from a, a hotel across the street from the convention. The convention is going, and uh, he's like, "Where are you?" And he's like, "I'm I'm at this hotel. Please, you can come." And so then, uh, once again, rather than scramble everyone and bring him in, yeah, they just send him with no gun to show up. And he's like, "I'm going to be able to rip out all of his wires from his programming." And he shows up, and he shows him a whole deck of cards is filled with Quee. Then he's just like unpacking everything that we already know. Yeah, everything that we already know is unpacked. He's like, "Hey, here's the first queen." He gives him this trick deck of cards he gets the first queen and he says we were captured and then we were programmed and he's, we're like yeah we know that and then he shows another one I killed uh, Sergeant what's his name and Corporal what's his fuck well, yeah we already knew that too shows him another queen and he's like I killed uh, Publisher Gaines yeah we knew that yeah. okay shows him an, <laughs> what else uh, shows him, shows him uh, uh, a whole bunch of more cards like all the cards he shows him all the queens though all the queens and he's like I killed I killed uh, uh, Senator Jordan yeah. and I killed Jocelyn and he's like okay wow this guy is broken real bad. <laughs> oh, shit. Listen, you're going to forget all about that. I'm actually going to use your brainwashing against you. <laughs> yeah. You're going to forget all about that. You, They don't control you anymore. And the next time they tell you to do something, you're not going to do it. I'm pulling out all the wires. You're, you're a free man, except you're under my control. <laughs> <laughs> And then while they're doing this, uh, Raymond gets a phone call, doesn't he? Yeah. And he's like, yes, mother. And Sinatra goes, oh, my God. <laughs> Shit, that's her. <laughs> the, the thing that the audience already knew, now I know. That's what this whole scene has been. <laughs> And he's like, remember, they don't control you. So Shaw shows back up at the Iceland house, right? Yeah. And, and then he's... we get the scene that uh, the only reason she got nominated for Academy Award for was for this scene, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where she has an info dump for the audience in which she's like, I told the Soviet people that I need an assassin, but I didn't know that they were going to choose you. And they chose you because they, they knew it would tie me to them. But they don't know that once I get power, because what's, here's what's going to happen. It's totally what's yeah. going to happen. This is what's going to happen. You're going to shoot the president presidential nominee, right? And that'll mean that Senator Iceland, who's now vice president, he's going to rush up, he's going to pick up the body, because you're going to shoot him while he's giving his speech, his acceptance speech. He's going to pick up the body, and everyone's going to rally around him, and then we're going to sweep into the White House with all this control and power, and megalomania, megalomania, and then I'm <laughs> going to destroy the people who did this to you, and now I'm going to give you a tongue kiss, and then she kisses him <laughs> on the mouth. <laughs> yep, that's pretty much it. <laughs> So now we finally enter the last act of this movie. Yeah. And see, and the, the suspense is that we don't know we, we don't know for sure if Raymond has truly been deprogrammed because while he's sitting there listening to his mother, he's still very much like the sort of brainwashed robot. Yeah. You know, so we don't know affect. who he's yeah. following at this point. Yeah. And uh, the whole team that's been assigned to this brainwashing plot has been reduced down to two people. <laughs> And they're waiting for Raymond to call him back because he said he would call them back after he was done, and he hasn't done it. And uh, Frank, Frank Sinatra and, and uh, I believe it's Colonel, Colonel Milt yeah. are like, do you think he's going to call back? Nope. Well, let's go find him. Just two of us? Yeah. I thought sure. we had thousands of people available to us. I know I said that earlier in the movie, that I could have thousands if I wanted it, but no, let's just do the two of us. Maybe we should shut down the convention. No! <laughs> <laughs> although, That's impossible. How would we do it? <laughs> although Marco does suggest, Marco suggests that when, when the two of them actually get there and they and they realize how difficult it's going to be for them to find Shaw if he's even there. Marco says, you know, we should clear these people out, and and yeah. Milt is like, oh, we can't do that. No, that's impossible. Yeah, and and Shaw's like, or, or Marco's like, you would do that if there was a bomb. And I mean, he's kind of like a bomb. He's we have no like idea what he's going to do. And they're like, yeah, we'll just let's, let's yeah, look whatever. for him. 
Now, what we haven't covered is that Raymond has shown up dressed as a priest, and he's got a sniper rifle and a briefcase. He shows up yeah. before the convention has even started, where people are cleaning, and no one notices that a priest is walking around with a briefcase. <laughs> but there's always priests milling around at conventions before the evening program. That's just normal. He climbs way up to a lighting booth, <clears throat> and then he sits there and he waits, because he's supposed to shoot the presidential nominee after he says a specific thing in his speech, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so now the tension is ratcheting up, because now the presidential nominee is go is, is giving his speech, and Frank Sinatra's there, and he's looking all over the place, and then the lights go down, and then he notices that there's a lighting booth thing, which is totally a thing he stole from Alfred Hitchcock, but it's, it's an homage, okay? <laughs> anyway... <laughs> He's racing up there. The president's giving his speech. We're looking through the sniper thing, and he's pointed directly at the president, the presidential nominee. And Frank Sinatra's racing across catwalks and doing a bunch of stuff, and the sniper target, and and Senator Iceland and his and and Mrs. Iceland are sitting up there, and he's and the, the tension and all this stuff, right, Steve? Yeah. <laughs> and what happens when the presidential nominee says the magic words? Shaw pivots the rifle away from him, and he shoots Senator Iceland in the head. Ooh. Yeah. And 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 then, he, and then he racks the next round into the chamber and he shoots his mother. Did he wait a few minutes to have her beg and scream and go crazy? <laughs> or is it just like really short where she's like, what? And then yeah. she gets shot? Boom. Yeah, it's he doesn't he doesn't hesitate. And then Marco comes, you know, bursting into the room and he's well, like. Well, first he puts on his Medal of Honor, his Medal of Honor. That's true. Yes, yes, yes. Shaw puts on his Medal of Honor and then Marco comes running in and he's like, oh, dude. And Shaw holds the gun on him and he says, you know, nobody else could have stopped them. The I army was, couldn't have stopped the them. The army couldn't have stopped them. I was the only one who could do it, and that's why I never called you back. And then he turns the rifle on himself, and he kills himself. Blows his brains out, and Sinatra's there, covered in sweat again. Yeah. <laughs> just witnessing something absolutely awful right in front of his face. Yeah. Oh, jeez. And we dissolve cut to where, Steve? To uh, Marco in his apartment. Yep. And he's reading a, a book of Medal of Honor winners. And uh-huh. He, and he reads through a couple of the citations from past Medal of Honor winners and the things that yep. they did to earn their, their medals. And then yeah. he, he makes up what he thinks would be an appropriate citation for Shaw's Medal Poor of Honor. Poor old friendless Raymond. Yeah. And he said, because, you know, his 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 medal of honor that he won was fake. But he's he says, you know, now he deserves a real one. And it would be, you know, that he was forced to commit these unspeakable acts by an enemy who had captured his soul. But he freed himself and ultimately he gave his life heroically to save his country. Can I have an Oscar now? (laughs) (laughs) Where's my Oscar, Pally? Now I'm going to turn towards the window and look depressed while there's a rainstorm outside because symbolism. Mm-hmm. The end? The end. Yay! Yay! Communism wins! <laughs> <laughs> We're doomed. <laughs> so, Steve, how do you feel about this taut political thriller from 1962? The Manchurian Candidate. <laughs> the Manchurian Candidate is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful <laughs> film I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Um, I, <laughs> you know, we, we, we touched on it a little bit as we were going through the, the, the synopsis there. I mean, it, it, it definitely has its flaws, right? Oh boy, does it. it. I mean, it, 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 there are, there are some, some very basic problems with the way it chooses to tell the story, like the audience knowing stuff before many of the major characters know it. So you end up being told stuff that you already know that kind of lessens the dramatic impact of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that happens a lot and it's kind of strange. You think like maybe if they had been able to tell the story in a way 
so that these things could have been revealed, you know, instead of just giving it to us up front and then having to watch the other characters figure it out mm-hmm. when we already knew it. Um, but despite those shortcomings, I think it works incredibly well. And I, just watching it the other day um, to prepare for this, I really, really enjoyed it and was and was very impressed by a lot of it. Um, there were, there's a lot of it that I find myself connecting it to, uh, like, the golden age of television because... Well, that's because it feels like television. It does. It, it. it feels a lot like television. Frankenheimer, of course, uh, made his bones in TV. He directed, oh, yeah, he, did. he directed a lot of live TV in the <laughs> 50s. He was a regular director on, on Playhouse 90. Um, mm-hmm. And he, you know, and he was one of the great film directors of the 60s to come out of television. Another one would be yeah. Sidney Lumet, who also got started in, in television. And uh, and you see a lot of that in this movie. Some of the shots, like especially one of the one of the early shots when they're on the patrol before they get captured, where you see a character's face kind of come in in the extreme foreground from the side, and then mm-hmm. the shot kind of pulls back and opens up. That feels like a very TV shot, like the camera's yeah. on a crane and they're sort of pulling back. And there, there's a lot of that. And uh, and it's interesting how you see TV itself being used in the story. You know, yeah. it's weird that it's it's very interesting that Frankenheimer, the director who started in television, uh, sort of casts TV as the instrument of destruction in many ways because Angela Lansbury's character when she's when she gives that big info dump at the end when she's telling Raymond about what he's going to do and how you know after after he shoots the presidential nominee she and Senator Iceland will be able to take power unprecedented in American history mm-hmm. because he'll be on TV and millions of people will see him cradling the presidential nominee's body and then he'll give yeah. this amazing speech that will rally the country to his cause and mm-hmm. and and whenever he gives his big rants you know like at the press conference about the communists you see that Frankenheimer is always careful to include shots of him on TV as yep. he's doing it um, so that's I, I like that element of it that you take it's 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 sort of there it's shot in ways that are reminiscent of TV a lot of the time it's shot by a guy who comes from TV and part of the the menacing aspect of the story is connecting it to TV and TV's power to reach millions of people with a message um, I think the acting is is terrific I think Sinatra is I think generally speaking is underrated as an actor I think we mm-hmm. for, we forget what a good actor he was because mm-hmm. his music sort of overshadows everything else but I mean it's really it's like finding out that Babe Ruth was a good pitcher too you know it's like <laughs> wow he could act too and he mm-hmm. really could act I mean he was a very instinctive actor he was very naturalistic um, mm-hmm. but he does some very impressive things in this in this movie and I, I think he acquits himself really well and this is one of his performances that is generally he was a one t- he was a one take actor in oh, the yeah. negative sense in <laughs> that he gave his all on the first take and then he got according to everyone who directed him that was the best take you were going to get out of him if he, you had to do the take again he just wasn't it, it, you got diminishing returns yeah he, that was it, that's why I say he's a very sort of an intuitive actor because he's not mm-hmm. he, from yeah, I, I've, I've always heard the same thing about him like that he you know uh, he seems like he would he read the script he would get he figure out who he thought the guy was and then he would just say the lines it was like like uh, James Cagney used to say acting's not complicated you learn your lines you hit your mark and you say your lines but mean it yeah. that, and that's acting and that seems to mm-hmm. be what Sinatra was that, that seems to be Sinatra's philosophy yeah. um, and, 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 and it worked more often than it didn't uh, and I think it worked for the most part in this movie very well um, Angela Lansbury of course terrific uh, yeah. especially in that one big scene and I love the way that scene sort of recontextualizes her character a little bit so yeah she's, mm-hmm. she's still evil but you see that oh she's evil for a different reason than we thought like she's not yeah. just a cop communist agent she's she's you know allowing the communists to use her so that she can use
use them and turn the power that they will give her against them. It's this really, yeah. you know, sort of twisted evil machination mm-hmm. that she has planned. Um, and it has twists like that in it that sort of make up for the fact that the story itself is very straightforward. You know, there's not mm-hmm. a lot of mystery. There's not a lot. There's not so much a suspense in terms of, you know, like what is going on because you know basically what the thrust of the story is from almost the very beginning. Um, but the but the, the, the suspense comes from the characters, comes from like, mm-hmm. you know, what's what are they going to do? How are they right. going to react to this? Is is Shaw still, you know, programmed at the end or has he really been broken free? And I, I like I say, it, it there are it's it's clunky at times. It definitely is is not perfect, but I think mm-hmm. it more than holds up and I think it's it's a great example of like a political thriller that can be suspenseful and can be gripping without having to resort to some of the the you know like the the, the pulse pounding music or the quick cuts or yeah. the, or the the flashy editing not that any of those techniques are necessarily inherently bad but they're just mm-hmm. often they're used you know to sort of create tension instead of to amplify it when right. you know there has to be some tension there to begin with and this movie mm-hmm. creates a lot of really good uh, tension and suspense through the story and through the characters I just I thought it was terrific uh, I really really enjoyed it okay my turn go for it all right <clears throat> let's start with the influence of the movie had before I get into the actual my actual feelings on the film um, the Manchurian Candidate uh, influenced a lot of things namely the idea that people could be brainwashed oh yeah um, the whole brainwashing thing started to appear in television routinely after that point that people could be um, conditioned to a point in which they would act against their own morality I mean fuck even the Flintstones had a brainwashing plot after this <laughs> fucking movie came out yep. but as far as I'm concerned, and, and, and as far as it being a touchstone to being a political thriller and being heavily influential, it was heavily influential. It was released during during the Cuban Missile Crisis when our paranoia about communism was at its height, where they we viewed them as an absolute enemy and they were capable of anything. And this movie played into that, right? Oh, yeah. The the villains, the communists, are cartoon characters. <laughs> Literally. They they are not realistic in any way, shape, or form, and that includes uh, Dr. Yo Ki, or whatever his name is, Dr. Dr. Yen Dr. Lo. Yen Lo. Um, but everyone, every all of the communists are absolute, complete evil. And um, and uh, the Americans, oh no, we have this dangerous thing where they can brainwash people and then and send their agents into the United States. Oh dear. And I have a lot, I, at first I wanted to appreciate the film for its placement in history and say that it holds up. But the problem that I have with the film is number one, its premise is one of the stupidest premises I can possibly <laughs> imagine. Let's go over the premise of the film, shall we? We? we have a senator and his wife. His wife is a communist agent. How did she become a communist agent? Doesn't matter. She just is one. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Doesn't know. We don't know when she became one. We don't know how she got to the position. I suppose you could say that she married um, Robert's father and they had a child together. And then the communist, her communist masters told her that we got to get rid of the father. And then you got to marry the senator and he's going to become our puppet. Right. That's the basic plot. The whole plot is to get this senator who is their puppet into the White House as president. Right. Right? Yeah. She says, I'll need an assassin. And they go, right, we'll get you one in the most convoluted, <laughs> unnecessary way possible. What we'll do is we'll brainwash American soldiers, not one, but eight of them. <laughs> And we'll make it so that your son, who is probably the most visible person that's next to you, is the one that's committing all these crimes. Now, his son is literally used as an assassin. That's it. They give him instructions. They say, go kill someone. He goes off and kills someone, and he comes back. So when you break down to the, the pivotal moment where he's up there in the in the lighting booth, and he's about to shoot someone, he's been disguised as a priest, there is absolutely no reason at all, at any point, that they needed to brainwash anybody to 
do that when we've clearly demonstrated, number one, they have operatives working in the United States that are Americans already who will more than likely do whatever they tell them to do. But number two, they don't need to be a brainwashed guy dressed as a priest up in the fucking lighting booth to shoot the person. In fact, they didn't need to do any of it. They just need to go to one of their American operatives and say, okay, this is what's happening. We we need you to go kill the Jordans, okay? They go, right, boss. And they go out and they kill the Jordans and they disappear. And then they go, great. Now we need someone to assassinate the the, 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 the presidential nominee during the convention. Right, boss. They go up there. They shoot him. That's it. Done. Instead, they go with the holy risky. Let's take people to work against their own morality and their own convictions as sleeper agents. And they're like, that sounds great. We'll do that. I cannot like this movie because the premise falls apart the minute you touch it. It doesn't, there is no, can you tell me, give me a solid reason as to why they needed to brainwash anyone to do the things that Raymond Shaw does in the movie? Oh, no, Other than that's the plot. Yeah, there's no reason at all. No. So if the, the, the premise of the film is so dippy that you could, a baby could pull it apart. I can't get into it. I appreciate some of the performances. I appreciate some of the some of the themes that run through it. But I also understand that this movie didn't help very much. Everyone was already paranoid about communism. Now we gave the communists superpowers where they can brainwash normal people into doing things that they don't want them to do. So when you left the theater, you're like, you know what? I bet Bob down at the corner, corner gas station, I bet he's one of them brainwashed people. In fact, I bet there's brainwashed people all over the place. Them commies can brainwash anybody and stick them in the United States. Holy shit. We're all doomed. And it's like, okay, all right, guys, the communists have a lot of problems. They have a lot of them. But the last thing we need to do is to make us afraid of veterans coming back from wars. Now, there are a couple of other things in in regards to this movie that just kind of take me out of it. It's clumsily edited. It is one of the most clumsily edited films I've seen. And this movie got nominated for an Academy Award for editing. And there are parts of the movie that are very well edited, and there are other parts of the movie where it's like, who 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 edited this shot? The shot where they load them onto the helicopters, and then we have this jerky pan to the tail of the helicopter, and then this hard cut to the to the, the to the TV credits. <laughs> It's just, it's just very jerky. I don't like the fact that we have gi- are given the entire plot of the goddamn, almost the entire plot to the goddamn movie in the first 15 minutes of the film. It's given to us by a narrator that treats us like we're even stupider. Like, we don't know what the Medal of Honor is. We don't, we don't know that the president gives it to him. We don't understand any of that. We, we definitely won't understand that Frank Sinatra is having a bad dream, even though he's asleep, sweating in his bed. And then we paint, we do a dissolve in which we go into his dream. We had that all of that explained to us. So, while I acknowledge that the movie has a place in cinema history, does it hold up? Not for me. I was frustrated watching this fucking movie. I was frustrated because I felt like I was being I was being handheld through this incredibly twisty plot when the plot isn't twisty. Oh no. Communist brainwashed soldiers. <laughs> oh, and his mommy's weird. <laughs> <laughs> And there are a couple of standout scenes, and they're standout scenes because of the performances. Now, like you mentioned before, with the um, with her whole ex- explanation uh, uh, monologue at the end, where she says, "Well, they're they're trying to use me, but I'm going to use them." The, the the monologue where she says, "It will be swept into office uh, with so much support, and we will have powers that will make martial law seem like chaos." Yeah, that's a great monologue. That ain't enough for me to say, "Wow, what a great movie." <laughs> And um, the whole thing about Sinatra's one take actually was detrimental to the film. And the reason it was detrimental to the film... Hey, Steve, did you notice that a couple of those shots were out of focus? Yes, yes, that's that's another Want to little... know why? 
because Sinatra wouldn't do another take. Because on the first take, it was out of focus, and then they tried to do other takes where it was in focus, and Sinatra wasn't as good. Yeah. So Frankenheimer said, oh, we'll just keep the ones that are out of focus. And I'm like, do you have any idea how bad that makes your movie look when, when you have shots that are intercut with clear shot, clear close-ups of, Ray, of Raymond's face, and you cut back to Frank Sinatra and he's out of focus? It makes the whole film feel very amateurish. And there's another scene, there's another important scene when, when Raymond first gets into the limousine with his mother in Iceland, and he delivers all of his dialogue turned around to them in the back seat. They could only focus on the two people in the back seat, so Raymond is out of focus in the front. Yeah. And he routinely turns to face back front, and he's still out of focus! <laughs> But I bet those camera operators never made that mistake again. Oh, fuck. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> the thing is, is that while I know that this movie is important, lots of people point to it and they say, oh, this is what a thriller is like. When I watch it, I go, if this is what a thriller... Yeah, I'm sure this was fantastic in 1962. No one saw Strawberry Preserve splat up against a poster like that ever. Or the other killings. And this movie was influential. When when Jordan, when Senator Jordan gets shot and the, the bullet hits the milk carton and the milk comes spilling out, mm-hmm. that got stolen by other films. Other people are like, wow, that's cool. We're going to do that. And it's like, yeah, showing someone get shot in the head when he when Jordan goes down and he puts another one in his head, that was surprising to me. I was yeah. like, oh, wow, the 1962 audiences must have been freaking the fuck out. And then he turns around and shoots the other woman in yeah. the head and you're like, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. But for me, as a modern viewer who ha- I guess I've become more uh, used to violence in films, when I watch that now, it doesn't have it doesn't have an impact. I do feel for the Raymond character by the end of the movie. I'm like, oh, you poor son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess that's kind of the point is that we're supposed to feel sorry for Raymond by the end, that he was ultimately the victim of all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. That, you know, not only was his mom a bitch, not only did he lose his girlfriend, not only did everyone in the platoon hate him, not only (laughs) did when he came back, he felt like he didn't deserve the Medal of Honor, not only did he murder his boss, but he also murdered his father-in-law and his wife. And that's (laughs) what it takes to make him sympathetic <laughs> that's what it took to make him sympathetic i felt that there were other things that could have made it made the movie stronger i think they never should have explained it at the beginning and allowed us to discover it as the main character was discovering it rather than have it dumped on us before and have to wait for the other characters to figure out what was going on there is nothing more frustrating to me than waiting for characters to get as caught up on this on the plot as we are that's extraordinarily frustrating to be like well i already know what's going on and now i'm watching these guys get caught up to where I am. Hey guys, come out of the movie and talk to me because I saw stuff that you guys didn't see and I already know it so I can tell you what's happening. You guys are all brainwashed. You don't, <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to suffer through this mystery. I don't need to know how they pull it apart. If I didn't know what was going on before, it makes the pulling it apart of it more satisfying. As we, If we were discovering things when Frank Sinatra was discovering stuff, it would have made the movie more impactful and it would have made it far more interesting for me. And I would have forgiven the dippy stupid premise of this goddamn movie. But instead, I'm <laughs> shown everything. And I'm like, oh, those communists sure did fuck up those guys. Oh, uh, no one else seems to know it. Um, how long until they figure out what's going on? Oh, well, it's the Queen of Hearts for him. Uh, Queen of uh, Queen of Diamonds for him. How long until we figure that the other people f- figure it out? What, what, really? Another hour and a half? Oh, great. Okay, great. <laughs> so, like I said, I appreciate some of the good, some of the good performances, but the overall experience for me was not of tedium, but it 
was just kind of like it was extraordinarily frustrating to know the because I have never I had I'll, I'll open admission I had heard about it I'd seen snippets of it I'd never sat down and watched the entire movie until mm-hmm. this review so when I finally sat down and watched the entire thing I was amazed that they they basically showed their entire hand within the first 15 to 20 minutes and then the rest of that time I'm just sitting there waiting for people to know the things that I know and that's not satisfying I kind of appreciate the fact that they introduced the Josie character in a flashback even though when they started into the flashback I threw up my hands and go what are we doing and we're going to go into the flashback of Josie but it makes her death impactful it makes it important to Raymond so then it justified that flashback which was fine but in the end I would walk away from this movie going I knew he was going to die I knew he was going to kill himself I just didn't know how I figured he'd probably blow his brains out but I just didn't know how I knew it was going to resolve itself I knew America would kind of win in the end despite the fact that they did practically nothing to prevent this assassination from occurring when I start talking to the film and saying well go get him bring him in you know something's wrong go get him bring him in oh well his honeymoon fuck his honeymoon go get him and bring him in so it's kind of like when when Frank Sinatra discovers that his American handler is his mother why didn't FBI helicopters descend on the Iceland compound and just take them all in I'm waiting for an answer Steve (laughs) because that's not the story See, you can't. No, you the can't do that. Be- the story isn't about isn't about catching his mother. The story is about Raymond. <laughs> I'm gonna hold you to that. Another movie. <laughs> That's not what the plot said. No, you know, well, I mean, you know, here's... here's okay, you know what? I've been I've been ranting. Please, please talk me down. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I mean, here's the interesting thing from where I sit about everything yes. that you've just said is that I can't I can't argue with any of it other than your feelings. <laughs> yeah, Be- I know. They're Be- my feelings. Because the thing, because the things you're pointing out, all the shortcomings in the script that you're pointing out, like, I agree. I agree those things are definitely there. And, and honestly, if this script had been passed around in like a screenwriting class that I was taking. Yeah. What you said about it and what I mentioned about it briefly at the beginning of my review, I mean, that's what I would have said. I would have said, don't tell us everything up front. Let this be a reveal. Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise you're just telling, you're just telling us things twice. And that's, that's a, that's a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. and this, this movie's script makes that mistake where it tells us almost everything we need to know within the first couple of minutes. And then mm-hmm. we just watch the characters discover what we already know. Um, but despite that mistake and despite some of the other things you said that I could be like the, just the, the sheer absurdity of the plot like why would anybody ever do this why would the Russians need to go through all of these convolutions when all the ultimately their plan is just to assassinate a presidential candidate um, yeah like it, you're right it's completely goofy it's completely absurd it's unnecessary it's preposterous but for whatever reason when I was watching it and this this is this is the first time I've watched it too uh, to for, for this show um, so when I was watching it it got me like it pulled okay. it pulled me in it hooked me and when you know that that scene where Raymond kills Senator Jordan and Josie like that really worked on me I really felt mm-hmm. for him in that moment when he's when he shoots these two people who are like the closest oh, I, to you know what I felt for Raymond too but I don't think ultimately that was the point of film no I don't think that was the point of the film either but I, I do think that was the point of that scene and yes. I think that and I think that scene worked on me tremendously well and I think the scene and the ending with with uh, with Marco you know making up the citation for Shaw's Medal of Honor and then sort of turning 
away and going, oh, hell, hell, you know, like that. that you I, mean the sad Star Trek ending? The sad Star Trek ending. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. If Sinatra had guessed it on Star Trek, how great would that have been? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, that it, it worked on me. Like I'm when I, it's one of those movies and I can I can name a lot of movies that I feel this way about that are that are both mm-hmm. a lot better than this and a lot worse than this, um, where I'm I'm only aware of their mistakes and shortcomings after the fact. When I'm watching mm-hmm. the movie, I'm pulled along and I'm and I'm involved in it enough that I'm not aware while I'm watching it of of all of the the things that it's doing wrong and yeah. and, and and for and for movies like that I usually cut them I cut them a break you know if if, yeah. if I'm watching the movie and while I'm watching it I'm not thinking about oh god this plot is ridiculous or why are they doing that or why are they telling us this now instead of at the end of the movie like if I'm not thinking mm-hmm. about that while I'm watching it I figure well you know they must have made it work you know mm-hmm. and that's how I feel about this movie is that for what it, it didn't work for you but but it we like we clearly saw the same movie and detected the same flaws but for whatever reason when I I'm watching the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't see those flaws. Eugenie's fiance must be a complete psychopath. If she's <laughs> fallen in love with this sweating, twitching weirdo on a train who asks her like really out of nowhere questions. Like, are you mm-hmm. a- are you Arabic? <laughs> what <laughs> motherfucker? <laughs> I don't even know what that means. No. And I think for me, it's, you know, everything kind of just kind of pull me out. Mm-hmm. And when it pulls, and if a film pulls me out too far, I can't get back in. Yeah. And I think that this movie pulled me so far out that I could not, I could recognize the dramatic beats. I could recognize the, the character moments. I could recognize the good performances and the bad performances. Um, nothing in the world would um, allow me to uh, appreciate the fight scene between um, Shun Jin <laughs> And and uh, Frank Sinatra in the middle of it, and by that point I was pulled pulled so far out that 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 whole fight scene is just a laugh riot oh, yeah. for me. Boy, it what? is just one of the funniest things <laughs> in the world, which is a bad place to be in that film. Yeah, when when Bruce Lee it's... saw that scene, he must have thrown his popcorn at the screen. <laughs> But for me, but if I'm laughing like laughing hard at what is supposed to be a pivotal moment for the for the Frank Sinatra character, mm-hmm. I'm I'm out. I'm I'm done. I can uh, I can start watching and, and appreciate the movie for certain parts of it, but and for certain character development things. But for the most part, the movie has lost its edge, and then I have to start viewing it from you know historical perspective. What did this movie mean when it came out? What did this movie mean to people who were watching it? Mm-hmm. What was its impact as far as the American people were concerned? Because it was a fairly popular film, mm-hmm. and and did this influence people's attitudes towards communism and towards our enemies and what their capabilities were? Did it convince a whole bunch of people that brainwashing is really a thing and that hypnotism works? <laughs> and, that, and that, you know, and once I'm there, I'm kind of like, okay, mm-hmm. you didn't like it. You can say it. You don't have to like every black and white movie, Jason. <laughs> yes, I do. I'm the old guy who likes old things. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so while it worked for you, it didn't work for me. Yeah. And I hopefully the people who watched this beforehand, some of it worked for them, some of them it didn't. Oh yeah, I'm sure. So final, final, final thing for me, it does not hold up. It does not hold up. Um, I do not think it should be a classic. I think that there are probably better um, thrillers out there, Alfred Hitchcock, that can do <laughs> things that aren't as dippy and stupid. Um, Steve, what's your opinion? Oh, I, I would say it holds up. I think it. I think it deserves to be a classic. Wow, our first true di- true disagreement on a uh, film. I think. Yeah. Like a like hardcore disagreement yeah. on. God, I don't, what does this mean? Can we be, can we still be friends? Of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> don't make me don't make me bring out your your activation your activation <laughs> make you change your opinion on this movie um <laughs> so yeah that's what we felt um and now it's time to uh recommend a movie that we we, we do like right steve <laughs> yeah, or in my case another movie that i like uh, yeah um, there you go uh yeah well i'm going to recommend another uh movie that uh stars frank sinatra as i said uh during my little spiel there i do think that he has sort of been overlooked as an actor i mean he he was very successful at the time and he had a really successful film career but you know the legend of frank sinatra today is as the singer not as the actor um but he was a good actor i think and i'm going to Mm -hmm. recommend a a film of his from a few years before manchurian candidate uh that shows off his his acting chops and it is a film from 1955 directed by otto preminger uh called the man with the golden arm oh that is the story of Sinatra as a a musician who develops a drug addiction and uh, goes to prison and gets clean and then gets out of prison and finds that it's really hard to stay clean. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's it's uh, it's a movie that sort of got people to sit up and notice Sinatra as an actor at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. He was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor for this. Um, it's it, it also stars Kim Novak and Darren McGavin and. And uh, score was by Elmer Bernstein. It's it's a really good movie. It's not it's not as well known today as say the Manchurian Candidate or From Here to Eternity or from some of mm. some of Sinatra's other major films. But it deserves to be considered in that category. I think it's a really good movie and a very very strong performance from Sinatra. So um, if you if you're listening to this and you are not as familiar with Sinatra as an actor and you checked out Manchurian Candidate and you're curious to see some other example of Sinatra as an actor. Not necessarily as a movie star, because he did movie star movies too, but oh, as, yeah, but as an actor, where he's really trying to you know be an actor and be give a a, a, a good performance, uh, I would definitely recommend that you check out The Man with the Golden Arm. I would too. I love that movie. Yeah. Well, my recommendation, as always, comes from the same year uh, as the movie that we just reviewed, and uh, I was looking for a movie that was a little bit controversial. <laughs> you know, just like I'm sure that the, uh, you know, I'm sure that even though I didn't like it, The Manchurian Candidate had an impact in movie theaters because people were seeing blood and shooting and, and implied incest and all that other stuff. And I'm like, ooh, what other taboos came out in 1962 where people are like, let's get rid of the code, please. Can we get rid of the haste code, please? So some people were pushing the envelope, and no one wanted to push that envelope harder than our good friend Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> he made a movie And in 1962, <laughs> he said, hey, what will really get under people's skin? What could I possibly do an adaptation of that would really, really push a bunch of people's buttons? And the movie I'm going to recommend is that movie, and that movie is Lolita. Now, for those of you who don't know what Lolita's about, it's about a middle-aged man who fucks a preteen. <laughs> Yep, there is your there is your log line. <laughs> There's your log line for Lolita. <laughs> Based on the book, uh, it was heavily adapted because there were definitely things that they could not get away with in that movie. Um, it was directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Vladimir Nobokov. Um, uh, Stanley Kubrick, of course, is uncredited as also were having worked on the script along with uh, James Harris. And it stars James Mason, Sue Lyon, Shelley Winters, and Peter Sellers. In one of the few Peter Sellers things where you're like, hey, Peter Sellers can act and not be a furrow guy. Um, Lolita was controversial. Surprise, surprise. Uh, <laughs> really? 
<laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Um, but it's a good movie. And it, uh, is it Kubrick's best? No. Kubrick really doesn't hit his stride until, uh, really until Dr. Strangelove, I think. Yeah. And then from there, the hits keep coming. Like, right, one right after another. <laughs> um, Lolita, Lolita was definitely pushing the envelope. Um, it's not quite to Kubrick's level of, what would you say his, uh, not dispassion. Um, it's not like he's dispassionate. No, I would it's like detachment. Detachment. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. so it's still a little bit of old school, old Hollywood Kubrick before he really, really just starts doing his own thing and people start appreciating it. Um, Lolita literally is, I mean, they move this girl's age up a little bit for the movie, but I think she's 14 in the film. I know the actress is 14. James Mason is what? <laughs> 40, 50 <laughs> in the film and it's all about him falling in love with this girl and then leading on her mother and then he writes absolutely horrible things in a diary and it just keeps going back and there's a guy in disguise and following and then losing a love and then killing and a whole bunch of other stuff. And if you want to know everything that goes on in that movie, then watch Lolita. It's, an en- <laughs> it's a weird thing to say. It's an enjoyable film. <laughs> <laughs> That'll, if, you're the, if you're a normal person, that will make you feel icky. <laughs> And if you're not a normal person, you'll love it, except for the ending. <laughs> what do you think about Lolita? Because you're, you're the big Kubrick fan. Oh, yeah. Well, the other thing is, um, it's a comedy. <laughs> yeah, it's a black comedy, guys. <laughs> um, I like Lolita. I... I I, I agree with what you say. Like, I don't think it, it quite rates with the best of Kubrick. But, we, no. I mean, the thing with Kubrick is he he didn't make that many movies, but uh, he had, like, his good movies are so good that Lolita mm-hmm. kind of kinda just, you know, drops out of the conversation. I mean, it's a good movie. Yeah. It's an interesting movie. Um, it, it, it definitely has things to recommend it. But, you know, mm-hmm. when you look at, like, I mean, bef- a few years before this, Kubrick made a, a movie called Paths of Glory. that I, Which is phenomenal. Is amazing. I think still one of one of his very best movies, and then yeah, shortly after mm-hmm. this, it, like all of a sudden, boom! Doctor Strange, Love, two thousand one. Spartacus was here. Yeah, uh, uh, Clockwork Orange, The Shining. Yeah. I mean, he just two thousand one. Yeah, his. We can forget some of the things he did in the seventies. A couple of movies in the seventies. Well, 70s. yeah, he did. He did Barry Lyndon, which people don't remember yeah. that well. But I mean, mm-hmm. he 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 became Stanley Kubrick after this point. But yeah, the Lolita, Lolita is a very interesting movie and, and a good movie, and um, I would mm-hmm. yeah, I think it would definitely be worth a watch if you haven't seen it. Yeah, so there you have it. We have two competing views of the Manchurian Candidate. One person obviously thinks it's a great movie and everyone should watch it. It should be required viewing in in elementary schools. And the other one (laughs) thinks that it's a huge flaming pile of dog shit that should be flung into the sun, right? Yes. That pretty much boils it down. And and now, (laughs) so this is the premise for our sitcom. Can we share an apartment? Can we get along? (laughs) Oh my God, which one would I want to be? I don't want to be either one of those guys. I don't want to be Felix or Oscar. Can't I be just one of the guys that shows up for poker? Yeah. <laughs> I think you, can, you can leave at the end. <laughs> yeah, I can leave and go like, Jesus, why don't they just kiss and get it God. over with? <laughs> yes, get it over with you two. <laughs> Do you agree with us? Do you disagree with us? Probably, since we have two completely different views on Manchuria Canada. You definitely disagree um, with one of us. <laughs> please let us know. Go to the Let Me Listen podcast website, go to the contact page and leave it for us there, or comment on SoundCloud and leave it down below. I love reading them and, and compiling, and uh, please, everyone, if you agree with me, let me know. I'm, I'm starting to starting to feel alone (laughs) (laughs) so that he can email me the comment and go see look see see i don't care what roger ebert said about this fuck him where is he now nowhere do you know that roger ebert actually came up with with a fucking theory about this film i about i didn't he theorized that the vivian lee character or the janet lee character Mm. um was also a plant 
Oh. That she was a, she was an agent, and that their weird dialogue was was the two of them activate. She was activating him to do something, but that doesn't go anywhere yeah. because then they're just in love, and so it's a stupid thing. Yeah, I, well, Roger. I see. I, I, I had that thought during that scene, but then it doesn't go anywhere. So it's like, yeah. You know. Well, I mean, Frankenheimer said that it's a red herring. Yeah, that he li- literally lifted the dialogue directly out of the book, and it's just supposed to be a romantic thing for the main character, and that was it because she really doesn't do anything. Yeah. in the movie. No. Other than to have someone that the character can talk to, yeah. Well, so he doesn't just stand in his apartment talking to his collection of magazines and books <laughs> he's read, looking like he's gone crazy. I was going to say, I mean, I, th- I think the book obsession is another thing that you could call a red herring because that was something where, like, I thought for sure that that was another shoe that was going to drop. Like, is there some reason why he's obsessed with reading all these strange books and it, it goes nowhere? It's just no, he no. just likes to read. No, he just likes to read. Put a book in front of him, he'll read it. <laughs> <sighs> so yeah, let us know. And uh, hey, Steve, we didn't talk about what movie we're going to do next no. so now you're at my mercy <laughs> oh boy Man, this is what you're going to get for disagreeing <laughs> oh. with me about this movie oh god no hmm let's see let's go into the steve's box of hated films <laughs> and see what's in there find something that he'll really hate you know what steve yeah you know what we haven't really done a review on oh what's that it's one of your favorites oh musicals oh boy sure we did the jungle book but that's really just a kid's film sure we did the wizard of odd but that's really just a kid's film i want to do a musical that everyone points to and goes now there's a musical everyone loves it that's the introduction to the modern musical everyone loves that musical and they reference it and it influences movies and lots of people love it you want a movie i want to do next what movie you want to do next man singing in the rain i see <laughs> I see, with uh, starring Gene Kelly. Starring Gene Kelly and what's-her-face and what's-his-name? <laughs> Debbie Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds, that's right, she just died. Hey, everybody, we're going to review Singing in the Rain. A big surprise to Steve, unless he tells me, please, no. <laughs> no, let's do it, let's do it. <laughs> Our first real official musical review of an iconic film that everyone references, everyone loves, and has been influential to the... Would you would you say it's been influential? Oh, yeah. It's one of those movies that people reference when they don't even know they're referencing it. Yeah, that's yeah. true, huh? So that's what we're going to do. Singing in the Rain, made by... I don't know. I'll have to do my research. <laughs> Directed by somebody. I don't know. Well, some jerk. <laughs> some jerk. <laughs> so if you guys want to get all the jokes, go watch Singing in the Rain. I'm sure you can find it somewhere. And uh, until next time, this has been Jason Harding, and go see a movie this week. And this has been Steve Shives, and you know, it's not that Jason Harding is hard to like. He's impossible to like. But wait, wait, you know what? I think that's the brainwashing. Wait a minute, I gotta find your control words. Just a second, let me find it here. Let me find it. Uh, I'll find it here. Oh, okay, okay. Um, he has crossed the meridian from animal to man. Yes, man. Did that work? <laughs> Jason Harding is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. Brainwashing for the win! Goodbye, everybody! Yes, ma'am. I said say goodbye, oh, Stephen. Goodbye. <laughs> oh, it's like living in a dream. <laughs> Use the power wisely. <laughs> nope! Take them off! <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Late Seating is a Lemmy Listen podcast production featuring Steve Shives and Jason Harding. Music by Kevin McLeod. Produced by Jason Harding. 
You can find more Lemmy Listen podcasts at our website at www.lemmylistenpodcasts.com. You can also find us on Facebook, SoundCloud, and iTunes under Lemmy Listen. Please like and leave a review. And thanks for listening.